And but if they're really good, you're like, well, I don't want to mess with it. But what if you evaluate that athlete and they have, you know, really crappy lead hip internal rotation? So in, in, in that athlete's case, you could say, oh, well, they're, they're self-organizing. That's what works for them. But they also don't have a choice because if they don't have mm-hmm. sufficient lead leg hip internal rotation, the only way they can get rotation is through is through their, you know, more rotation through their spine because they don't have it available in the hip. So what if we took that athlete and we gave them, you know, not, not even like, I'm, I'm not talking about like a Cirque du Soleil performer, but gave them like average human being hip internal rotation, which is like 30 to 40 degrees. What if we were able to restore that through, you know, through part training, doing like a, a mobility drill or, you know, a manual therapy technique, whatever. And now we have that person swing, their swing might change without any kind of cueing for better or worse, but maybe for the better, because now they have that lead hip internal rotation available. That was Doug Katigian, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle stimulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the Freelap Timing System and K-Box, or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of of data collecting strips, the contact grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than uh, being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Welcome to podcast 167, episode 167 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for being here today. Our guest, Doug Kachigian, he is a therapist, physical therapist, coach, and owner of Resilient Training Systems. Resilient's clientele includes athletes and operates from a variety of professional sports as well as military special ops and those with a history of persistent pain and extensive surgical backgrounds. Doug, not only, um, not only is Doug the owner of Resilient Training Systems, but he also has a background in the U.S. Air Force, where he was a pararescue man, he was deployed throughout the world, and that really is something, as you'll hear in the show today, that really expanded his viewpoints and and these things that allow us to get outside our own box. Uh, other, not only other portions of the field, but other other 
philosophy, other portions of just other careers in general, uh, other portions of the world is what I'm trying to say. But Doug, Doug has a wide viewpoint on things. He spends a lot of time, and you can see this if you've heard him on other podcasts, his own podcast, his social media, just the thought, the thought process and trying to find the truth and avoiding like tribal mentalities and the mental heuristics that lead us into uh, maybe faultily into too much of an extreme of thought process. Um, he is introspective, humble, transparent. All these things led me to this episode today, sitting down to talk with Doug. So that being said, we're going to tackle a few things that are very, can be very black and white in the field, very extremist, very easy to hop on one way or the other. Um, when at the end of the day, there's a lot of shades of gray that need to be looked at with all these things, with anything. Um, the main two things we're going to get to are anti-rotation training, train the core in general, um, or rotation training in general, and then self-organization and cueing. So letting that spectrum of letting athletes do things completely on their own versus on the other extreme, you know, cueing and coaching every little thing. Obviously, the answer lies somewhere in the middle. We're going to get into that today in detail. And this is a really fun show with a very wise individual. And again, I just think that in an industry where it's just it's so easy to hop on one end or the other, um, this is a mind-expanding show. This is a get-outside-your-bubble show. And I know Doug's thought process helps me tremendously. So I'm excited to bring you this one today. Let's get on to it. Doug, hey, so it's awesome to have you here, man. Um, so I know last 20 years, like you've, you've done some work in the military, military to physical therapy. Like that's, uh, that's quite an interesting transition in life. And, and how did, what's the last 20 years been for you? And how has that, how has that, how has that transition worked out? Yeah, Joel. So first of all, thanks for having me on. Really enjoy the, uh, the information that you put out. Um, so a little bit on my background. When I was, uh, in college, undergraduate, at the time I was, uh, focused on, pre-med and actually applying to, to medical school. And I went as far as taking the MCATs, interviewing at schools and trying to figure out, you know, where I wanted to go and do that. And then in the midst of that process, I found out about, um, a job in the air force called pararescue. And basically pararescue combines emergency medicine with military special operations. So you get to practice emergency medicine while also doing things like static line and free fall parachuting, scuba diving, uh, technical rope rescue, extrication, which is basically like if, uh, being able to get in and out of things. So like if a helicopter crashes, the patients don't automatically present themselves to you. You need to be able to get in and out of that aircraft to access the patients and medically stabilize them. And then you get, you know, the typical like small unit tactics, marksmanship and combat training. So, um, you know, the more I learned about that job, the more intrigued I became to the point that I actually withdrew myself from that, uh, medical school application process, even though, I was pretty deep into it, and much to uh, my parents' dismay, enlisted uh, in the Air Force um, to be to be a pararescueman. So, going through that process, you know, like a lot of the special operations jobs, it's pretty selective uh, initially, and you know, generally because they don't want to invest a lot of time and money into training people on the technical skills, they do a lot of they weed people out on the on the front end. And the way that they do that, because you know, and this is, I know we're going to talk about kind of like. Uh, selection, training, and talent identification. In, in sports, it's a lot easier to identify talent because if you're like a college football program or an NFL football program, you can watch film on somebody and you've got a pretty good sample size as to what they're capable of. Because people don't you know, show up to an Air Force recruiter uh, being able to parachute and do all these combat-related skills, they've got to try to identify 
talent in a different way. And the way they do that is typically through, you know, just sort of the, uh, the physical and psychological challenges um, where, you know, they essentially weed people out through physical exertion. And obviously you, you can't really differentiate the physical part from the psychological part because the more physical discomfort you're under, then there's obviously a huge psychological component to the, the ability to kind of, uh, you know, carry on with the task. So um, identify a lot of people on the, on the front end with the physical part. And I'd always been interested in physical preparation, um, you know, just through playing, you know, sports and th throughout high school and throughout my youth. And even when I was in the medical school application process, I always felt that I wanted to do sports medicine um, and just preparing myself for that selection process. It's really, it's uh, generally pretty endurance based. Um, and there's a lot of, it's a huge water component to it. I didn't have much of a swimming background, so I had to kind of teach myself how to swim and be somewhat technically sound and then, you know, prepare for all these sort of mixed physical qualities. So I knew that it was something that I might want to do down the road, even after the Air Force, um, with regard to that, like the physical preparation component. And then just having gone through that, that selection process, um, like I said, they, the, the selection is based primarily on your, your physical ability. And then after that, once they've kind of, you know, eliminated the people they don't think are, are psychologically and physically capable of, of doing the, the follow-on training, then you go to all your technical schools where you learn how to, how to jump, how to dive, how to do rope rescue. We did like eight months of emergency <laughs> medicine. And so the cool thing about that process was learning all those different skills. You actually get, you get good at learning things and you kind of learn to recognize like what, what constitutes good training, what's effective and what's not. And that's obviously, you know, um, has a huge carryover to physical preparation and physical therapy. Cause the bottom line is like in the military, you don't want to have any false confidence, especially in a, you know, special operations unit, you work in very small teams. There's not a lot of redundancy. So if something goes wrong, like you're really expected to do your job. And sometimes you have to do the job of multiple people. Um, so there's no room for false confidence and you need to have a preparation process that you really trust. Um, and so, you know, sport, the world of sport is really no different than that. It comes down to, are you prepared to do your job or are you not? But having gone through all that technical training, like I said, you learn to recognize, you know, what, what, what methods of learning are really effective and what aren't. And because you have skin in the game, it's not, it's not this like theoretical detached environment. Like you're going to pretty scary places and you have to do your job there and you know whether you're prepared or not. And you're much more comfortable doing these missions if you've had good training behind you. So um, I think just going through that process and learning how to learn was really useful now because every or a lot of professions think they're trying to solve unique problems. So with like in the sports preparation world, it's like, oh, how do you recover from a hamstring injury or an, an ACL tear? Um, and th these things like they're not necessarily new problems. It's like, were you ready to do your job in the first place and what constitutes readiness? And I think having gone through all that training in the military and doing the job and having this constant process of debriefing and refining our tactics and refining our training, um, it had a huge carryover into what I do now, which is um, physical therapy and you know physical preparation. So I did originally in the Air Force, um, like kind of six to eight years full time. And then after that, I switched over to the Air National Guard, where I did the, you know, as a pararescueman part time, but even part-time, that commitment was three to four months a year. So it's effectively a full-time job just because you have to remain competent at all these different skills and doing the minimum, you know, reserve or guard requirement is not sufficient to maintain that competency. But while I was in the, you know, in the part-time military, 
I went to, uh, to physical therapy school, got my credential there, and then even started a practice after physical therapy school while still being in the, um, you know, working as a pararescue man. Um, and I eventually, I got out of the military little, little less than three years ago, just because it was very difficult to run my own practice and then constantly have to do all that training. I was getting pulled away for deployments and I, I love the job, love the, the experience and, and the guys, but it just became too much to do both things. But the, the experience itself was invaluable just because, like I said, you really learn, you learn how to learn. And because you're, you have this really diverse skill set, you come to see the, um, the commonalities as to what constitutes sound preparation. And, you know, we were talking about David Epstein before we, we started recording and, you know, David Epstein's book range speaks to this about how to be kind of this specialized generalist. And so in, in pararescue, the, our motto was actually a uh, jack of all trades, master of none, which that's, you could, that's not necessarily good or bad, but that's what we were. Like we weren't, we weren't as competent medically as like a, like an, an ICU physician. We weren't as competent at jumping as a professional skydiver, but we had to be good enough at all those things to do our job. And when you, when you prepare to be good enough at a lot of different things, you, 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 you recognize certain patterns and commonalities among these, these diverse skill sets and these diverse fields. And I think that that, that was invaluable because I know that you want to talk about kind of the relationship between, you know, like strength and conditioning and physical therapy and looking at things as more of a continuum and not these really distinct fields. And so that my military experience really helped me to, uh, to clarify, you know, how do, how do you navigate this, this kind of messy, complicated space? Sure. It sounds like, you know, a guy who, for a guy who was like headed to med school and then found himself in like pararescue, like very applied, like every, like obviously very, you were basically looking ahead at a world of probably academics for however many years versus instantly going to something that was extremely applied and in the, the space of serving and helping people in, in, in uh, I guess, a medical, a medical domain. Uh, and I think a lot of things in our field, um, or, or any field, right, are often uh, the theoretical versus just getting your hands dirty and being forced to learn on the fly, you know. Um, I think that those are really important aspects to, to, to anything. And so when it comes to, you know, approaching some of the, some of the, some of the debates or some of the things that I think become very black and white. And honestly, some, a lot of the things that I have for you on the, our question list today, like, like core bracing, <laughs> anti-rotation, right? Um, a lot of times I think that stuff can get very black and white, but how do you, how do you approach, like when you go into a topic, um, how do you approach learning that? Like what is, what's some considerations and ideas that you like put forth when you are going to go in and dissect that? Yeah, I, that's a great question. Um, and I, if you asked me this question even like a year ago, I probably would have had a different answer because, you know, it's there's certain narratives that are very appealing. And one of them is this like reverse engineering mindset that like everything can be broken down into component parts and you can basically just dissect this complex process into all these um, all of its constituent elements. And then if you study those elements, then you're somehow going to understand the whole better. And people, when it comes to learning, especially they want you know, people love formulas, right? So if I said, well, like I read, you know, one book a week and I, I, I do, I listen to a podcast and I gave like numbers and more of like an algorithmic answer. People like that kind of stuff. But now I realize that learning is much more messy. And at, at this mm -hmm. point, and this could be just because I'm in a different place in my life and I, I have more of a filter for information. And maybe it took me like having more of an algorithmic approach to learning to develop the filter. But now I, I just kind of, 
read whatever I'm interested in. And I mean, I could read a book on, I, just, I mean, I'm reading even more like philosophy and, and heuristics and things that aren't really sports uh, preparation specific, but I can read one of those books and it helps me to connect some dots in physical therapy or in physical preparation. But um, I think that, you know, you, 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 there's always this range between being, being a specialist and a, and a generalist. So if we're talking about like, whatever it is, uh, you know, you said core bracing. I mean, you, you have to understand the, the biomechanics and the anatomy of that phenomenon to a degree, how deep you have to go is something that we could talk about later. Um, but then beyond that, I think you also have to read a little bit outside your field because I think reading outside your field is what helps you to, to connect dots and to see, see the bigger picture because it, 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 and I've talked about this and some other things that I've done where along the same vein of the generalist specialist debate is tactics versus strategy. So you could be a really good tactical practitioner and, and that, that can serve you very well. And that's kind of, that's the specificity aspect. Like as a physical therapist, I've got to be able to evaluate. I've got to have a decent eye for movement. I have to have decent hands. I have to know my rehab protocols, even though the protocols should be followed somewhat loosely and in, in more of a principle-based manner. Um, and so that those are my tactics, but the strategy is much more difficult. And the strategy often can't be reverse engineered because if we look at like the military as an example, tactics is like, okay, how do you, how do you get a four-man team to to enter a room and clear a room? Or how do we cross a danger area like a road? Or what do we do when we get ambushed or we have to react to you know enemy contact? Strategy is like, how do you, first of all, what what even what does winning in a place like Afghanistan look like? That's a very difficult question to answer because there's social, political, economic, all, all these factors that influence that answer. Um, and then you see that you know th when, once tactics become more of a, a strategic type thing, then it becomes much more difficult to to, to quantify. Like I, I remember being in the military, the military just like sports now is obsessed with with metrics. Um, and you know you'd go to these briefings and it'd be like, well, like you know IEDs or improv improvised explosive de devices are down you know this much this month, or um, mortar attacks are down this much this month, or you know, there's been um, less enemy attacks, but does that mean that strategically you're, you're achieving what you want to achieve? Because, for example, if 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 units in Afghanistan stopped going out on missions, the attacks would go down because they weren't making themselves vulnerable. But does that mean that you're actually sort of winning and gaining the territory that you need, and you know, pacifying dangerous areas? Like you can you can game your metrics by not even leaving the base. And if you didn't leave the base, then IED attacks would go down because you're not vulnerable to them. You're staying in your safe area. Um, you know, indirect fire attacks might go down. Um, and then, you know, like even something like like body count, right? If you uh, watch the the Ken Burns Vietnam documentary, is a great analysis of tactics versus strategy. Where you know the defense secretary was kind of he came from a um, a big data background and he was kind of obsessed with analytics. And because of that, he liked to kind of reduce uh, readiness or, or strategic um, evaluations to these really simple data points. And in Vietnam, the big thing was body count. So it's like, does killing more enemy mean that you're achieving your strategic objective, which in the case of Vietnam was trying to pacify this very, very um, dynamic political situation. So that's kind of a long-winded answer, but to say like how you learn, you have to have, you have to look at the micro and you have to look at the macro and then somehow you know, I, I don't know if there's like a proportion of each that you need, but 
you have to understand things, the big picture, and then, you know, like I said, on that more micro level, and then how do you, how do you blend those things into a model that, that really, really um, allows you to, to see things more clearly? So I think when it comes to any kind of model and learning, you need to have, you need to be, have a you know, diverse uh, viewpoint, and you need to look at things through multiple models, because if we go and look at like physical therapy, for example, there's like this whole you know, bio, biomechanical versus um, pain science or psychosocial thing, and like those are both models. They're they're ways of trying to explain reality. Reality is a very complex thing that often can't be explained. We're, we're, sometimes we're we're better at doing things and actually like articulating or understanding them. Um, so I think you need to have some level of theoretical precision and be able to like articulate why you're doing what you're doing. But you can't lose sight of the big picture, which like our field is an applied field. You still need to be able to do things. But any model is just an attempt to explain reality. And all these models are inherently imperfect. And as long as you recognize those models as being imperfect, you can take what you need from those models and then use multiple models to try to develop a more comprehensive way of looking at something. So it's exactly like the whole Bruce Lee thing with martial arts, where he studied a bunch of different martial arts. He recognized that like boxing was great for, for striking and fencing was great for footwork. And um, you know judo was great for grappling and close quarter stuff. Um, and he kind of took what he needed to from all those things and then disregarded what was useless for his particular goals, which was kind of just more of um, what we would now call MMA. So you, I think you have to have a, a diverse uh, diverse lens or group of lenses through which you look at the world and try to explain reality. And then beyond that, I think it's also a good idea to, if you're learning something, we, we all have our biases. And you know, no matter what we say, like even, even in science, right? Like most scientists aren't doing studies to um, without having some kind of an, an outcome in mind or they're, they're hoping for a certain outcome generally. Like nobody goes in blind saying, I'm not really sure what's going to happen. Anything that, any outcome that we find, I'm going to be equally um, satisfied with. Like we, we, scientists and all of us, we want to prove certain things and oftentimes, you know, just confirm our, our biases. But I think it's always a good idea when you're learning something to, if you can, if you can argue um, sort of like your opponent's viewpoint better than they can and still come to the same conclusion, then I think then then you've achieved that level of theoretical rigor. So if you're like, and this transcends into politics, right? Like if you're more right leaning or left leaning, like you should be able to argue the other side's position as well or better than they can. And if you still come to the same conclusion, then then your your argument is a little bit more robust. So I guess in summary, it really comes down to you need to you need to know your field at a micro level and study that, but you also have to have a, a way to connect the dots and see the bigger picture. Because if you don't see the bigger picture, that's how you get these silos between strength and conditioning and physical therapy and sport coaches. And all these things exist more in a continuum. And we, we like to break things down into these neat lines because it makes it easier for us to, to learn and to compartmentalize things. But just because it's easy doesn't mean that it's good. Does that, that kind of answer your question? You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I was I was just thinking as you're at the end there, you're saying a little bit about like, I, I love the Bruce Lee example. And I, I love the example of just getting outside your little box and, and spending time in the other in other aspects of the field or other jobs. Like, even I've, I've joked that there should be a day where like strength and conditioning has to or a week where you have to do the athletic trainer's job or sports medicine's job 
you know, I mean, not do it, but you have to, I don't know, like maybe, or, and then sport, and then, and then the next rotation is you have to do sports sciences job. And then the next rotation is you have to be on the field, like coaching or, you know, like you have to, and I think that uh, to me, and to me, I know a lot of my, I, I mean, a lot of my influence uh, in, in what I do. And, and I think the beauty of sports performance, strength conditioning, whatever you call it, is it is interdisciplinary. And I think anyone who's been around my work file probably sees the track and field influence and spending time as a track coach on on that. But some of the things that I've been really interested lately is just dynamics of team sports and what makes a what makes a good athlete uh, in in team sports. It just not even just looking at pure on field, nothing to do with forces of the weight room. Um, just just looking at them for what they do and everything else, and trying to dissect that and extrapolate that out. And so it's 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 a little bit different than MMA. You know, it's, it's kind of, I feel like at least for martial arts, maybe there's a little bit more cut and dried because there's all these distinctive practices, but in sports performance, it's not, it's not, I mean, there's different versions of sport, but there's also different, you know, there's psychology and there's, there's so many different ways that you can pull at it. So, uh, yes, definitely. I, I, um, I'm, I'm very much in favor of getting outside of, uh, what we do or, or really trying to spend time in the heads of other people in closely related fields to ourselves for trying to find that perspective. Yeah, for sure. And, and like I said before, I mean, at this point, I just kind of read what interests me, you know, like I've got colleagues in the field like you who are like, Oh, have you read this book? And I'm like, no, like if someone that I, that I trust and that like, that I look at as a source of information is reading something, then like that oftentimes is enough of an endorsement for me to, to want to read a book or I'll listen to a, like I just listened to a podcast, Peter Atia podcast where he interviewed somebody who wrote a book on like healthcare systems and, and how, you know, how the healthcare dysfunction came to be and what the incentives are. And so, I mean, that, that was actually a two and a half hour podcast and you would think, Oh, like I heard what I needed to hear in that two and a half hours, but I'm like, wow, like I need to, I need to read the book and get this in even more depth because, and that's, that's one of those things where, you know, sometimes if you give away information for free, it makes people want it more. And the more the more the guests talk, the more I was like, I've got to read read this book because he's only scratching the surface in, into what are some of the systemic constraints that that make healthcare what it is, and things like lack of price transparency and some of the educational incentives and and how you know uh, government regulation shapes all this stuff. And but and it, it's a very multidisciplinary thing, just like we're talking about. Um, and be, because he didn't have any simple answers that made me want to dig even deeper into, into the topic. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fun. If you, and it, you just have to have a, a micro level view and a macro level view and know when to, to zoom in and zoom out. And as far as learning goes now, I mean, it's just learning is supposed to be supposed to be fun. So, you know, we all learn in school a certain way where we weren't in charge of what we, we learn. So like we have a test and you've got to study the material that's on the test. And it, it in some ways it sucks the joy out of learning. Now, I only have to learn what I'm interested in. So I don't, I don't actually like really think about it that much. It's, it's in some ways it's like not even that rational. It's more of an emotional, like what's going to give me satisfaction reading, listening to. And I just, that's what I do now. I don't have uh, like the, the more like reverse engineering or algorithmic way of learning just because that's not necessarily fun. And at this stage in my life, like, you know, I'm running a physical therapy practice. I'm doing all these different things that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading and learning on my free time. So that can't, I don't want that to be burdensome. Like that has to be enjoyable. And the way to make it enjoyable is just to kind of sort of like go with the flow for lack of a better term. Sure. So, so first, uh, like kind of topic of, of getting into all these things, of applied learning and all that. And so obviously, and, and I think it's really cool with the range 
uh, that you have and the experiences you have and then the physical therapy take on it as well. But so because uh, this is something this is a topic of performance that I look at when I when I hear this, I put on my track and field lens like of performance, like like throwing a javelin or something is is the lens I go to. Um, And that forms my, that kind of is where I form my view. Uh, And that's the idea of like core bracing, anti-rotation, these, these types of training constructs for training the trunk, as opposed to uh, maybe a more fluid dynamic model of, of, of core or or trunk, whatever the word, insert word here for that area between, I guess the, the, you know, pelvis and rib cage or knees and knees and shoulders, whatever you want to call it. But uh, what's what is your take on that chunk of our field? Yeah, so going back to like the micro versus macro level thing, I think, and this is a good question because it's like I think it's one of those topics that's unnecessarily controversial. It's not controversial with other body parts, but it's some for whatever reason it is with the trunk. So if you look at any body part, and if we like, like let's substitute ankle for trunk, and then people would be like, oh, this makes total sense. If you look at like the ankle, right? Any any joint or any body part has to have some kind of a bandwidth between stiffness and sort of pliability. Um, and so the question is like, how much of that do you need? So I think when we talk about like anti-rotation and bracing, we're really talking about stiffness. And I think, you know, Stuart McGill articulates this better than I can, where he talks about the need, especially in rotational sports, to have this pulse where you have this, you know, relaxation through the trunk, the hip, whatever. And then you have this, this contractile pulse. And that, so it's basically about, you want to generate stiffness at the right time so you can apply forces in the right vectors in the right directions and you know sequence these forces so that at the moment of release of an implement whether it's a ball or a javelin you're going to get you know maximal uh, velocity at, at hand release so that the implement goes further but if we look at like the ankle right there's a reason why pretty much every track and field coach does some kind of jumping because you know everybody in track and field talks about like okay hip extension but if you don't have a sufficiently stiff ankle then when your hip is producing all those forces if those forces are dissipated through the ankle and the ankle is not somewhat stiff and and elastic then you're you're kind of wasting some of that hip drive so you're in the case of running you're trying to sequence those forces so that the power or the force that's generated by the hip isn't dissipated through the ankle so you, you need some degree of stiffness when you're when you're running or when you're sprinting but at the same time if you you don't want an ankle that doesn't move or dorsiflex at all because then the ankle is so stiff that it can't amortize, and now you're now you're you're not going to be able to access all that all the the elastic component of the ankle joint. So you don't want zero stiffness, but then then you don't want you know you don't want someone to be a noodle either. Because if someone's a noodle through their ankle, then they don't have enough stiffness to be able to transmit transmit those forces from the ground that were generated initially uh, by the hip. So rotation is no different, right? Like in a rotational sport. You don't want someone who's a noodle through their trunk where they they over rotate and have no stiffness because from a health standpoint that's bad. Those are the people who tend to get spondies, right? They just they over rotate to the point that now they're overloading those facet joints and they're instead of decelerating with the muscles in their trunk, they're effectively decelerating themselves at end range of spinal extension and rotation, which after a while makes the spine kind of angry. Um, but you don't want someone who's like so stiff to the trunk that they can't rotate at all. So it always comes down to, you know, what's, what's the intent with these things. And I, I can only tell you what, what I do, because I think that's the, kind of the more honest answer. Um, I, I like a lot of the, the Lee Taft anti-rotation stuff or stiffness stuff, because I think that for, for most people, something like a, you know, like a, like a, 
a Paloff press as an example, I don't know if that's really dynamic enough or challenging enough. Like for most people just standing there on their feet or even in taller half kneeling and you know pressing on a band that would otherwise rotate them is not a sufficient challenge. And I think it's, you know, unless someone's like in a rehab setting where maybe they, they can't weight bear or something like that, I don't know if it has great dynamic correspondence. And you also, you want to integrate that stiffness in a contextually specific way. So a lot of the lead Taft stuff involves like you're, you're moving in the frontal plane, doing some kind of like side to side movement, um, like either with a band in, in that pal off position, um, or you're, you know, moving in the frontal plane and then you're kind of doing like a fake throw when you change direction. And, and you know, the, the application behind that is when you change direction, you don't want to over rotate because if you over rotate, like in most sports, you want to be able to see the field, see the opponent. So if you're, you know, if you're guarding an opponent and you go to plant your foot and change direction, if your trunk over rotates and now that person goes to cross you over, it's going to be harder to recover. So that's a case where like in a, in a field sport, multi-directional sport, you actually want some level of stiffness. Um, and that's why I, I like some of the, the Lee Taft movements because he's, He's working on you know stiffness in the context in the context of change of direction, um, and you're, you're also a lot of these athletes who Stu McGill talks about who do this pulse well, they either do it naturally well or they're they're going to develop that ability by doing the task. So if it's like if it's a kickboxer, they're going to develop it by kicking. If it's a, a baseball player, they're going to develop it by swinging a bat. So you mm-hmm. know like as far as how do I develop this? I mean I'm, I'm it's just like with running. If you have an 800 meter runner. You don't have them do run just 800s. You want to have some amount of bandwidth to support that specific task. So, you know, an 800 meter runner is going to do some work at even like a one or a 200 meter pace. They're going to do some work at even their five or their 10K pace. And the question is like, how much bandwidth do you need to support the specific task, which in that case is 800 meter runner. So with a rotational sport athlete, like I want to train both ends of the spectrum. I want to, I want to train stiffness and train rotation. So I might do you know, at one end of the spectrum, I might do like a half kneeling windmill type drill just to develop the ability to rotate through the hips and the thoracic spine and kind of work on an end range position, but end range where you're not kind of impinging a particular joint. So because you you need to have range and stiffness. So I want, I'm going to work on the range component and then I might do, you know, some of those like Lee Taft fake throw type drills. I mean, even things like, um, you know, like really heavy, carries whether you're holding it in your hand or in a zercher position like you can you can develop rotational stiffness even in a more sagittal plane activity um so you don't need it doesn't always need to be uh plane specific but you know if i'm in in my practice if i'm being totally transparent like i'm doing i'm doing both like i do do things like fake throws i do some pal variations i have people throw medicine balls um where they're actually like releasing the implement and they have to rotate um, so I think, you know, you want to have the ability to do both things. You want to have that bandwidth where you're, you have, you have the range of motion, but you also have the stiffness. And then if you train, you know, if you train the extremes and as long as you're not too extreme, now you're going to support the specific task, whether it's throwing a javelin, swinging a hockey stick or a tennis racket or a baseball bat. Um, and it's a really good question because, you know, oftentimes we do things and we don't try to articulate why we're doing them. And so this was a really good exercise for me to figure out like to justify why I'm why I'm doing what I'm doing but from a practical standpoint like I don't do a whole lot of purely static anti-rotational drills um I like to use you know more of the like the med ball fake throw type things where the extremities are moving very rapidly mm-hmm. while the while the um while the trunk remains stiff 
because I think that just that mimics what we're doing in sport a little bit better. So I, I, I am training anti-rotation, if you want to call it that, but I'm using it with things that look a little bit more dynamic than maybe what a pal-off would look like. And then if I'm, um, if I really want to train stiffness, you know, how people do like, I'm not talking like light, but really, really heavy carries where they have no, no other choice, but to reflexively brace and get stiff where they need to. I don't teach people, I don't teach people specific bracing techniques. I don't say like, okay, when you do a deadlift now, I want you to brace because I think that, you know, that people generally do that stuff refl- reflexively well with the caveat that you're, you're putting them in a good position. So a lot of times like what we see even in like a deadlift is most people know not to, you know, and this is like, for, for whatever reason, this is one of those things that's controversial in PT, like, oh, you know, spinal flexion is okay. Like, yes, it's, it's, it's okay to flex your spine and, and under any kind of like heavy deadlift type movement, the spine is inevitably going to flex if you hook up sensors to them and you do a biomechanical study. But most people who lift really heavy things regularly would agree that in their setup, they're not intentionally trying to flex. They might get into a flex state, but they're trying to, you know, be somewhere in the middle. And people hate the term like neutral spine because it doesn't really exist. It's, it's a range. But we have we have kind of a range of what we consider, you know, acceptable position, starting position, whether it's like in a clean or a snatch or in a deadlift. And it's going to come down to the eye test, right? So we don't want too much flexion or too much extension. It's somewhere in the middle. That's kind of what neutral means. It's like it's this range of what we consider acceptable position. But in like a deadlift, an example, a lot of people, they know not to pull at end range flexion, but they'll, they'll bend over at end range spinal flexion, flexion to get to the bar. And then they'll, you know, you'll hear the cue like, all right, now arch your back, stick your chest out to get back to quote unquote neutral. Um, and then, or, or they'll be told to like, to brace. I kind of, I would rather not start somebody off at end range flexion in the, in the beginning of a, uh, of the pull and then tell them to arch their back or to brace. Because if you start somebody off in a good position, I find that those cues are often unnecessary. And I don't have like great data to prove that. It's more anecdotal and just the, the people that I've, that I've worked with. But I, I try to keep things as simple as possible. I don't like to use a lot of cues. Um, I don't want to make this, this stuff too cognitive. And the way, to, the way to, to do that is to be a little bit more picky about the position that people start in. And if they're starting off in a good position, I often find that bracing cues and sticking your chest out and stuff like that often isn't that necessary because in the case of like a deadlift, right? Like if you if you have to tell somebody to stick their chest out to get to where you want them to be, then to I, I think oftentimes you've already failed at setting them up in a good position. You shouldn't have to cue chest out if they're already starting off in a good position. So why not just start them off where you want them to be instead of having them go to end range flexion and then stick their chest out to get back to neutral? It's like just start start in a position where you want them to pull from and then you don't need to constantly keep tweaking them before they they pull the bar so i know that like in a lot of elite lifters you know they've got a setup that works for them and they might start off in in a more flex state and then you know stick their chest out or arch to get back to neutral and if these people are pulling 800 pounds and they're you know winning powerlifting meets and that works for them from a performance standpoint like that's fine i'm not trying to change what they do but most of us aren't working with that kind of an athlete. We're working with an athlete who we're using, we're using the weight room as a means to an end, not the, the end itself. And so from a risk reward standpoint, I, I just prefer to start people off in a good position, you know, and that, and that good is obviously, or admittedly in a, in a um, subjective term, but I want to start them off in a good position so that I don't need to cue them about how to brace and make everything super cognitive. Because I think that 
frankly, we've made lifting weights like way too difficult. Like it's not, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not calculus. Like you're picking up a weight off the floor. So just show them what you want to look like. And, you know, if you don't say too much and you show them what you want, they oftentimes do what it is that you want without having to say too much. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I think that's um, that gets into another question I was going to get to you uh, uh, with in terms of like drills, part hole, and 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 all that. But I I did want to say I like um, I like with, with the whole like anti rotation rotation thing. I love what you're saying with like the the reflexive aspect and the Lee Taft and the fake throws. Just because and I even put this in a this kind of came to me and when I was putting together a little uh, Instagram post on like this idea of rather than bracing the core, let this idea of letting the core respond, like set the core up and then let it respond. Like that to me, that language is, is where it's at. And I, I, I like the idea too. like, even you you compare it to compare the core, like the foot and the stiffness. Well, if you were tracking, like I was a jumper, like if I want to train my feet, I'm not going to do, um, I'm just going to not going to put myself in new, a neutral level of dorsiflexion and do, you know, calf raises that are just hold the calf raise asymmetrically at 40%. You know, there has to be, there has to be, if I'm going to do anything, it's got to be close to a hundred to f- impact me as a jumper. And I was thinking like, you know, if, if people wanted to really take that argument of anti-rotation from like, if you want to make it like, like per- total performance output from not talking injury prevention, you know, just do an overcoming isometric max and throw it in a French contrast circuit where you're like measuring club head speed or bat speed or something, you know, like to, to see if applied right away that you're getting some sort of, you know, trace potentiation that impacts that. But even outside of that, Cal Dietz said it, and I heard this five years ago. And well, actually I, I heard it, you know, when I was just getting into the strength and conditioning field, like 10 years ago, I read an article that someone wrote on, like planks aren't necessarily going to help you in the sense of you can't, you're not going to be able to turn your abs on and glutes on and then expect like that to work athletically because it's reflexive. And that was a hard article for, I remember reading that like when I was 25 and I remember it being a hard article for me to read because I'm like, wait, the stuff I'm doing, like I just learned this RKC plank and I'm supposed to turn all these muscles on and I get this sick isometric. Oh wait, and that doesn't, that's not the way the, the core works in sport. And that was, that was a hard time because that was me giving up a little bit of like what this this power i hope i had <laughs> and and it was also something that was hard for me to understand a little bit at the time in reading like like this reflexive idea because it was all these tools that i had no idea what they were and i felt like i was going to be a few years away from and have a few mentors away from finding ways to make this work um and so I, it's it's interesting like to go back and think about that but i i think about too like in the track world and this goes to what you were saying like like i look at like all the throws inventory special strength exercises and and general strength exercises and i've spent some time uh, learning a little bit about like the bonder chuck training inventory anatoly bonder chuck and i don't see any anti it's always end-to-end range stuff <laughs> i i haven't yet seen something where there was like a a brace in the middle type thing it was always like go go end to end with whatever whatever special strength tool you are using for or same thing for javelin you watch all those um finnish javelin training videos or these guys who've been doing this anecdotally and and pragmatically for a long time and it's all stuff that's generally full range of motion trunk uh work uh but I, that's and that's where i don't i'm not as sure is the bandwidth of somebody who uh, maybe isn't like health, like is not as athletic as these guys who are throwing the javelin 70, 80, maybe 90 meters who might have 
something that, like you said, might set him up for a spondy and trying to figure that out, you know, and trying to trying to piece together. Okay, do you need something that's a little more um, focused in maybe the, you know, are you are you rotating too much? How do I know? Like, uh, and and obviously javelin throwers are like you know the kings of spondies, right? So <laughs> maybe that was a bad example to put in there, but. But like, what are you? What are your thoughts on like the bandwidth of performance versus someone who, you know, are you over rotating and could this set you up? And do we need to take what we're doing and make it a little more controlled, so to speak? Uh, what's What's your take on that? Yeah, a lot of a lot of good points there. I just want to touch on the uh, the bracing thing before I answer that because every every like intervention has unintended consequences. So all of us are well intentioned and we want to do right by our athletes. But like as an example. With the bracing, if if the key, you know, as far as we know to like rotational performance is this ability to relax and then get really stiff, this this pulsation, right? Because we want to generate velocity throughout the kinetic chain and then at the moment of impact get really stiff. If that if that's what we're really chasing from a rotational performance standpoint, if we're telling people when they do these activities to deliberately brace, are we inhibiting their ability to relax, right? Because mm-hmm. you need to, you need to, you, it's, it's not so much about bracing and being stiff. It's about bracing and being stiff at the right time. And, I, you know, that, that pulsation at the time of whatever, like impact or release, like you're, no, people aren't deliberately saying, okay, as soon as I release this javelin, I'm going to brace my, my trunk. It's happening reflexively, like you said. So, but if we tell people to brace when they do a rotational activity, um, you know, I would, I think under the stress of competition and throwing an implement, they're probably not going to be able to override what they would do in their hindbrain and like and you know brace throughout the movement and inhibit what it is they're trying to do. But we just need to realize there's unintended consequences if we're telling somebody to just blindly brace in a rotational activity. Um, that's not actually what we want from a performance standpoint. Going back to your discussion of the plank, a plank may not have great dynamic correspondence. Now, but that doesn't mean it's a reason not to do it necessarily. So. And I work with a lot of like uh, baseball players, throwers, and like there are some of these throwers, they throw like above 90 miles an hour and they look like crap when you put them in quadruped and, you know, it doesn't pass the eye test. Like you could see kind of that I can grab their, the medial border of their scaps. It's almost like there's this valley or cavern between their shoulder blades and you can have somebody go skiing between <laughs> their shoulder blades. So is, is getting them in a better quadruped position going to like help them throw harder in a way that like you can totally correlate? I don't know, maybe, maybe not, but I think from like a, you know, a bandwidth and a general health standpoint, I, I would, it's not too much to ask in my opinion of somebody who throws 90 miles an hour to be able to do a plank that looks halfway decent without a ton of lumbar extension, thoracic extension, um, even if we can't prove that there's a great dynamic correspondence. So as long as you have like, it always comes down to why are you doing what you're doing? If you're doing a plank or like one of these, you know, more isometric type um, trunk, trunk movements, to like throw harder and that's your reason. Well, maybe that's not a great reason, but if it's to develop some general abilities and just give somebody that bandwidth, because that, that comes into answering the question that you actually want me to answer, which is, you know, how do we, how do we navigate like this, this range of, of activities? Like how do we develop a rotational sport athlete to throw and then not develop a, a spondy as an example? I don't have a perfect answer for that, but I think that conceptually what we need to do is like, you have to have, you have to have the bandwidth to begin with. Right. Because if you only have one way to do something, then under stress, you have no options. There's this whole, you know, self-organization thing. There's this camp where it's like any any movement that self-organizes 
under competition conditions is inherently good and we shouldn't mess with what athletes do because you know if they're doing it organically then that makes it the best movement and that may or may not be true but i think that if it is true there's a caveat to it and that caveat is you want to make sure that when somebody self-organizes say throwing a javelin and let's say they're throwing the javelin and you know to your eye when they finish the throw they're getting into kind of an end range spinal rotational extension position that might be what allows them to throw hard but if that person's never done any kind of stiffness or anti-rotational work how do we know that if we did some of that work and then had the person throw without trying to change how they throw um, how do we know that maybe if we gave them the option or the ability to decelerate better through the trunk that they couldn't throw harder so you know I, when we do some of these, like, um, and it, it goes back to the part and hold training, we're often like, oh, you know, if we do, if we do some of this part task training where, you know, like a, an anti-rotation drill, if we do that, we're going to rob the athlete of what makes them good, which is this great rapid rotational ability. But doing a, doing a, a rotational drill or anti-rotational drill under very controlled conditions isn't necessarily going to carry over to when they throw, but at least if we try to develop this bandwidth or develop this movement variability, if you want to call it that, at least now when the person is under stress or competition, now they're, at least they have options to choose from. So an example is, and going back to like a rotational sport athlete, a golfer, right? A golfer might um, hit the ball really far, but when you analyze their swing, they're, you, know, you might say they're like over-rotating or over-extending through their lumbar spine. And, but if they're really good, you're like, well, I don't want to mess with it. But what if you evaluate that athlete and they have you know, really crappy lead hip internal rotation? So in, in, in that athlete's case, you could say, oh, well, they're, they're self-organizing. That's what works for them. But they also don't have a choice because if they don't have mm -hmm. sufficient lead leg hip and total rotation, the only way they can get rotation is through, is through their, you know, more rotation through their spine because they don't have it available in the hip. So what if we took that athlete and we gave them, you know, not, not even like, I'm, I'm not talking about like a Cirque du Soleil performer, but gave them like average human being hip and total rotation, which is like 30 to 40 degrees. What if we were able to restore that through, you know, through part training, doing like a, a mobility drill or, you know, a manual therapy technique, whatever. And now we have that person swing, their swing might change without any kind of cueing for better or worse, but maybe for the better, because now they have that lead hip internal rotation available. So I, I think it's dangerous to assume that any movement that we see that emerges organically is best for the athlete because it might not be a choice. So you want to give people choices and at least give them the, the requisite, you know, foundational joint positions or, or motor tasks or motor skills so that when they do perform the complex movement, they're making a choice, so to speak, and they're not doing something out of necessity. I think there are a lot of athletes, even high-level performers that we see who they do things, you know, well from a performance standpoint, but they don't, that's, that's the only option they have available to them. I think our job as coaches is to give them, you know, some bandwidth because obviously you can go too far with it. There's always this you know, the, uh, a, like kind of a, a conflict between rigidity and chaos. So rigidity is having no options. So that means that the movement that we see that emerges organically, it's all they can do because they, they lack the, the requisite um, variability and the parts that comprise the whole to do anything but what we see. The, the flip side of that is chaos where it's like, okay, if you take a, you know, multi-sport or field, field sport athlete and you make them, you give them kind of the, um, the mobility of a ballet dancer, well, now they might not have enough stiffness to change direction and produce forces, um, you know, in, a, in the, the rapid way that we want. So it's, you, you want some bandwidth. You don't want too much or too little. 
I think there are a lot of athletes who don't have enough bandwidth and we would be serving them well to give them a little bit more in training. And there are some athletes who have too much. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of times the, the eye test works pretty well because the, like, especially in baseball as an example, there are a, a, the reason why a lot of these people throw really hard is because, you know, they're hypermobile at the shoulder and through the trunk and that allows them to, you know, generate, uh, velocity through a greater range of motion and, and that sort of thing. But if they're so hypermobile that like every time they throw, they're taking their shoulder to like a really end range position and impinging the joint and putting a lot of stress on the anterior capsule of the shoulder. Now you're looking at the mechanism for labral pathology, bicep tendinopathy, those kind of things. So, you know, there's always this fine line in sport where what makes people good can often be what puts their health at risk. So to me, like a lot of times those athletes, baseball players in this instance, do kind of well when you, you give them isometric activities and they, like they hate it because they always want to move fast. And the only way they know how to stabilize their body, so to speak, is to go really fast and take their joints to these end range positions. So sometimes getting those people to slow down and learning, you know, how to generate some tension in an isometric position, not at end range, can can help them from a health standpoint. And now when they go to throw, maybe they at least have the ability to control what it is that they're doing without having to take the joint to end range. So, you know, I'm not saying that like doing a, a plank or a quadruped activity is going to give them the stability they need to throw a baseball and decelerate when they're generating that kind of um, velocity through their arm. But we, if we don't try them, they don't have a prayer. So cook, you know, uh, training is kind of like cooking. You know, you have all these ingredients and you're constantly tinkering with like what, what's the right amount of each ingredient so that the, um, the meal tastes good at the end. And it's this constant process of tinkering, trial and error. Um, and, you know, uh, if I'm being honest, like a lot of what I do is trial and error and guesswork. And you're just trying to make sure that you're, you're not guessing to the point that you're putting the athlete at, you know, at extreme risk. But anytime you do an intervention, there's a risk that it could go well or it could go poorly. Um, and as long as you're somewhat honest with yourself and self-aware and you let the athlete have a, you know, have a say in what you're doing and you're getting feedback from the athlete, all you can do is just is try. Um, but you, you need to have some kind of bandwidth because if you don't have any bandwidth, then whatever you're doing, you know, from a, a gross movement standpoint might not be a choice. And I think that athletes need to have options. And the question is what's too little options and what's too few that to me is the real debate. The real debate is like, what's enough options? Not that any time an athlete does something, it's inherently good because it's, you know, the task emerged organically. I think that's a little bit simplistic. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, the, that's, that's a big area that I think can, I mean, especially given each given sport and all the little attractor wells and how many, how many different rate degrees of freedom do you want? I, I think that, you can really get in the weeds with that stuff, but it is really important. Like it's, it's like you said, like you have the golfer who lacks internal rotation range and they, or, or if you're trying to swing something and you lack that, well, yeah, you can self-organize all you want, but you're going to be, you're, you're, you're blocked by your own physiology or, or structure in that element. And until you do something about it, you're not going to have more options to explore what you could do without it. And there's so much, that's where even you know sixty uh, minute podcast. There's just so many little nuances there that each one could be more than that in the the world of trial and error behind it. I, I I'm glad you mentioned even like with the plank, like in those types of things. And to me, uh, I mean, I'm not actually I'm not just because I I read that I'm not anti plank. The thing I've just kind of grown out of 
because I do extreme ISO push up all the time with my athletes, which is a plank. <laughs> a push up is a plank. Like you can't, sure, yeah. you can't hate on that stuff. It's, it's, it's the, you know, and, and front and uh, sagittal plane control is a big thing. Um, but it's just, I try not, I try, I've just watched my language with that stuff. Like, like trying really hard not to say, well, turn this muscle on more or even, um, or even, Hey, make your posture like this more in the sense of like, giving them letting them feel uh exposure to different ranges like like different tippings even like if you paired uh extreme iso push-up or a plank with a cat cow and said look here feel these ranges uh and expose yourself to different you know feel the spine move and now try it again and just see if that athlete can self-organize it giving them a little direction obviously <laughs> so we like this thing of how do i give an athlete a direction with this stuff without making it like this pre-programmed universe. Like there's those athletes who's like every single thing is okay. This position, turn on this muscle. They aren't reacting anymore. They're trying to like make something up and that's not how sport is played. But so I like, I think there's that bandwidth there where it's like, okay, give the athlete the environment to self-organize. That's going to lead them in the right direction. I think that's coaching um, rather than, I think like you're throwing in the towel and you're saying, oh, we'll just squeeze your glutes. Like, <laughs> you know, like we'll just squeeze your abs more. Like, like, I mean, not that I don't think you can't do that at some point, like, but it's, I just don't think that's a good practice to always be in that. Like, okay, I'm going to make you this athlete by telling you, like, like giving them like, you're even like, I do believe that posture and position is really important. Like you have to help steer an athlete into that right position that fits the technical bandwidth or they're going to be in trouble, you know, like, but it's an art to get them there. And that's an art I'm exploring right now. Yeah. And I think that like, that's why we can have these abstract conversations all day. And in in theory, training is pretty easy. It's like, okay, let's find whatever that bandwidth needs that's required. And then the athlete can self-organize. And like, that's, it's easy to say in theory, but like, what does that look like? Which is why I think the only way to really drive our professions forward is people need to share, like, what are you actually doing? Like, what's on your piece of paper, film a coaching session, because that's like, unless you're willing to, you know, if you're like a, a stockbroker or whatever, unless you're willing to show someone else your portfolio, um, speaking in abstracts is actually is often not that helpful. So that, that's why I think like transparency is the key to driving the field forward, because if we talk about bandwidth. Okay. Like, what does that look like? How do you, how do you structure a training session to develop that bandwidth? And then when we start doing that, we realize, how messy some of this stuff really is because on social media, everyone is like, you know, they want to speak in these, in these certainties, um, but they're not putting their ass on the line and showing what they're doing with their athletes. Cause the people that are putting their ass on the line, they're not that certain because they recognize how great this stuff really is. And I mean, I get humbled every single day in my clinic and there are people that, you know, I get good outcomes with that. I don't help at all that I get bad outcomes with. Um, and you're just constantly trying to, to reassess, you know, how that happens. Um, so, and, and, this also goes back to like, you know, if we take more of a, a bird's eye view and we get macro level, this is no different a conversation than this is a popular topic now with like the election coming up. If you look at border security, right, you, you got, you've got people who they speak in certainties about how we're going to develop like the ideal immigration policy. And so on the left, you have people saying, we're going to have an open border, we're going to let everybody in and we're going to give anybody that wants to come in, even illegally, free health care. Like that's, that's an absurd, I don't care, like, I don't. I don't care if I offend anybody. That's an absurd policy if that's actually what people are advocating. But equally absurd is the position on the, the vocal people, mainly on the right, who are saying like, okay, we're just going to like build a wall around the entire country and not let anybody in. Um, so we're basically just going to, you know, 
isolate ourselves from the world. We're not going to have any kind of diversity at all. And then any, we're not going to have any new Americans, but for the people who are here right now. And does that mean that we should like get off the internet too and not exchange ideas with people in different countries? Like how far do you want to take these things? So what, the, the more you, if you, sometimes it can be helpful to look at things from the extreme vantage point. And then when you look at the extremes, you're like, wow, that's like, that's really ridiculous because one of those policies is the epitome of rigidity, which is like building a wall, a fortress, and letting nobody else in. The other is the epitome of chaos. Anybody who wants to come in can come in, and we're going to give them free stuff if they come in. Neither of those things are really a good policy. But then if it's like, okay, if you want to, what are you actually going to do about it? There's, there's nobody in any political debate on the right or the left that's actually um, discussing what does a good policy look like, because that involves nuance and involves details. And when, in a debate format, when you have 30 seconds to answer a question, how would you solve immigration? You can't answer it in 30 seconds. It's really, really hard. And so if we take the, the approach that like people on the right and the left, they both kind of ultimately want the same thing. They just value different things um, from a you know, relative standpoint, and they might have a different way of going about it. But I don't think that anybody like wants to have a country that's being just like allowing any kind of person to come in without any vetting process, nor do I think most people actually want the country to be totally walled off from anybody and have no diversity, but for what we have now. Um, but ha what that looks like from a, a policy standpoint is very, very difficult because no matter what you do from a policy standpoint, there's always going to be a compromise. When you when you favor one thing, you're doing it at the expense of something else. And the only way to know if something is working is to try it and tinker and be transparent about the fact that like you, you're not doing it perfectly and you never will, but you have to continually reflect and try to just try to improve over time. Training is no different. If we take the position that all we're going to do is part training, part training is the epitome of building the wall, not letting anybody in. That's very rigid. It doesn't it doesn't carry over to the dynamic, chaotic nature of sport. But if we say all we're going to do is play short sided games, and then any any we're not going to do any kind of part training. Anyone's we're just going to look at the whole task and however somebody self organizes, we're going to pat them on the back and say great job. Like neither of those things are actually that good. So we have to figure out like, all right, what's what's the blend between those two things? And the only way to do that and evolve as a profession is to, all right, like what are you actually doing? Show me, show me how you're doing both and just think and reflect collectively and not speak in these absolutes. Because that's the most dangerous thing, is having certainty about a complex phenomenon, whether it's like politically or talking about training. Like and that's that's kind of what our informational climate and social media incentivizes now. Everything is a a competition for attention. And it's easier to get attention when you take an extreme position versus saying, wow, like, I'm not really sure this is complicated. It involves trial and error and nuance and, you know, having a more honest, collective conversation. That's not what the incentives are right now. So hopefully things get a little bit more moderate because I, I don't think that the current way that we disseminate and share information right now is conducive to really um, advancing the profession. Yeah, I think what gets likes on social media has never been a good marker of what's actually going to lead us in the right direction in finding the answer in any field. Right. Um, you know, it's always it's it's just not the dynamic. Um, but I, I I think maybe this is something we had talked about even before the podcast. But like esoteric stuff, like stuff that's almost more in the air. It's not the grounding of it all is always the nuts and bolts and the results and what you're doing and the before and after videos and the state, you know, the frame, the stage by stage progressions. And even in something like the, the strength conditioning sports performance industry, uh, unless we are directly tied to the skill, you know, the transformation of skill as these athletes are going through the system, 
you know, it's, it's a lot of it is esoteric. Like it's hard necessarily, I think, to have a conversation on anti-rotation and core bracing if you're not showing before and afters of if you do you have, do you have, uh, data on uh, injury rates on a team and even that can be a little bit muddy i think but or do you have uh, like like bat speeds or club head speeds or do yeah. you have do you have show this person serving a tennis racket and or or hitting did it have an impact like i like you know, i like things that jeremy frisch has said on using damp half's general strength circuits and seeing technique organically improve because athletes have been exposed to all these other movements Good. Yes. That's hard to quantify if you're trying to make like a, you know, it's, I be, and I believe it a hundred percent. And I think that is amazing. Like that's, that is, and that's where I want to go with so much stuff. Um, but it's, it's also can be a little hard to quantify exactly what of that, you know, it's like, what of that general strength specifically? <laughs> right. But, but uh, ultimately like the proof is in the pudding. And I think the fact, you know, I, I like where a lot of people are headed. Like a lot, there's a lot of like sports performance people heading to, sports skill like people getting into baseball like like pitching coaching or skill coaching and i think that's like awesome because now everything you do you can pin it right to like okay here's the before here's the after like done like here's what we did and you can and it just makes it so much easier to put that grounding on the whole thing like and and now we have something that's more concrete that we can keep um, revolving our talks around and i think the more that that happens i think the more it'll help us all in, in, in the direction we're headed, you know? And so, yeah, cause it's easy to, even, even if I'm having a conversation with someone just in the weight room about not pre-programming and not overly trying to activate all these muscles and not feeding too many internal cues. Well, if it's just the sake of a clean, that's not, you're not like reacting to anything. I mean, technically you can react to your own body and timing clocks if you're really complicated, which I have after <laughs> so many years of this, but it's, it's got, there's gotta be something that's concrete that we're seeing before and after, uh, I believe. Yeah, for sure. And like you mentioned, even like the internal and external cues thing, it's like, there's this very binary debate about what's better internal or external. And it comes down to like, what what's your intent? What are you trying to achieve during the coaching session? And whatever cue helps you achieve that intent was a good cue. Mm -hmm. So I don't even think it needs to be that, that binary. I mean, like when I coach an athlete at this point, like I'm not, I don't say to myself, like, is the, the cue that I gave somebody an internal or an external one? Like I, I actually, at this point, I probably forgot what the distinction even is. Um, you're, you're talking to a human being and you're communicating and you're trying to communicate in a way that resonates with the person you're talking to. And so whatever metaphor, analogy, or description you have to use to get that, that outcome is like what, what I would do. Um, so, but again, it, it comes down to like, we like to make things very binary. Um, and I don't know if it, it is that binary because I've seen, you know, different people respond to different things. And if you do a study and the study shows, you know, on the whole or on average in X situation, people respond to this style of cueing. Well, what if you're working with the, one of the athletes, the 30% of the people in the study that doesn't respond to that kind of cue. So, you have to be adaptable as a coach and you basically have to use whatever cue is going to get the desire that you want. And if you have an, an end stage in mind, then you just take that end stage and whatever it takes to get you from point A to point B is a good cue. Um, so again, I think we, we kind of overcomplicate this stuff because we like, we like tribes and we like to be certain. Um, but a lot of this stuff is very, very ambiguous. So I'm not saying that like you shouldn't, people shouldn't read motor learning research and read about cueing, but just recognize that it's, it's a model that has limitations. And in any of these studies, the studies are performed under very 
you know, rigid set of constraints and those constraints might not be the same constraints that you operate under. So try to, you know, take some of the principles from it, but you're not, you don't have to blindly adhere to any of these models. Yeah. It's ultimately what, at the end of the day, it's what works and what works for the athlete. I think with the queuing thing, and I I mentioned this to you before, the thing that I, that, that does like, I'm always looking at, did they do what I guess I was trying to get them to do? But also there's a lot, I think, quality behind that or like the idea behind the intellectual, very intellectual athletes, like just tell me where to, you know, put this limb in space. Like it's almost like they're seeking internal cues, like they're seeking what to do yeah. uh, versus the athlete who just wants to go play and feel and react. And they're naturally reflexive and feeding to that engine. Cause I, to me, I'm like, well, I want all athletes to be that reflexive athlete, you know, that, um, that, that more natural athlete, if you will, but it gets a little muddy when it's like, you're trying to help athletes self-organize without necessarily saying it, but they just can't do it. And it's like, um, or even like, like I've mentioned like that say where it's like, and you know, there's so many different contexts, everything too. I wasn't there for all this, the, the study mechanics, but like the idea that the athletes that could just throw the discus, um, and, and we're just told how far they threw rather than getting coached and, and a group of athletes who got coached, the coached athletes initially threw farther with the queuing systems. And I don't know what those queuing systems were either that these, but like, but self-organized co- athletes actually eventually surpassed in the long, it, it can be just a mud. It can be, I feel like just the details are so everything. It can get so individual. Um, yes. it, it, it's, it's. But it is it is really the individual nature. Like it is, it's just so what it comes down to, and just being able to operate under that. So, um, but like these the the shows where we we leave on it's uh, it depends can be uh, it's it's eye opening, right? But like it's always to me, it's always about those. Um, it is always about the nuts and bolts and getting down to the, the end result of things. Yeah, and that's why like when people say um, you know they're not satisfied, it depends. Well, then. I'm not, I'm not speaking to like you because we're, t- we're speaking more generally, but like if you if you don't want an it depends answer, then give me a better question where you're like spelling out like these are these are all the constraints and the details. And then I, then it won't depend. Then I'll tell you what I would do. So a lot of times people aren't satisfied with it depends, but they're not asking detailed enough questions and providing enough information for someone to take a really, really like hard stance. Um, but as far as the queuing thing goes, I mean, this is just my bias. Like I want to use the simplest cue that I can to get that the desired result. Cause I work with so many people, even like if I work with an accountant who comes in and is like, well, you know, when I deadlift, I feel it more in my, my QL than my, and they're naming all these muscles and it's like an anatomy lesson. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, my, and this is maybe my bias. I'm like, wow, another provider screwed them up and made them way too aware. The fact yeah, that like this yeah, accountant I agree with that. knows more about anatomy than me. Um, so I'm not saying that like you don't want athletes to be aware of what they're feeling and maybe what body parts are working relative to others. But I think that, knowing more about anatomy than me, you know, is, or like using more muscle centric explanations than I would even to a colleague. I think that's probably too much information. So even people who are like analytical, they don't necessarily want or need more information that is necessary. They just want sufficient information. So again, it depends like what is, what is sufficient. I think a lot of people, especially like physios, because they want to show people how much they know, they overdo it with the anatomical explanations. And I think that, you know, unless you're really certain of something, the more you say, the more you can get yourself in trouble because of the unintended consequences. And you can make people too aware. And if if we were right and we were certain about like what we were saying was true, then sure, we can give all these details. But a lot of what we're saying, we're just guessing and we don't we don't know anyway. So we're better off saying less so we don't incriminate ourselves, in my opinion. Yeah. 
I agree. I think I think the excess anatomy and excess data and excess like scientific studies come out when there is a little bit of a lack of um, knowledge about the actual workings of the thing. Yes, <laughs> that's what all like, stuff say, comes to out. To say like I'm, I'm not sure. This is like kind of my yeah. best. Just be honest. Like, hey, in my experience, which nobody wants to hear, like I, I can't articulate why, but I think this is what we should do. You know, hopefully you trust me. If you don't, I understand, <laughs> but I, I can't. I'm not going to give you false certainty either. Yeah. 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 I agree. It's, uh, it's definitely, it's an interesting world with, uh, but, but it's a good world. Yeah. I think we're all, we're all learning more and able to, to me, like the more we can come together and focus on what we have in common and how to make that better and then always bringing it back to the result. I just think the more this field will move forward over time. Yeah. Uh, but you know what? Like this is like these kind of conversations are a good place to start. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree, Doug. Well, hey, I think that's uh, all the time we have for our show today. But thank you so much for being on. Um, thanks for spending the morning chatting with me. Enjoyed chatting with you. So have have a good one, man. Yeah, you too. And thanks for making me think about these things uh, a little bit harder. <laughs> All right. Thanks for being with us for another show. Appreciate appreciate you guys being here. Appreciate you listening. Uh, if you enjoy the show, enjoy what we're doing. Uh, you can support us by heading over to iTunes, Stitcher, leaving us a rating review. We totally appreciate that. Um, thanks to our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. They have been a longtime sponsor to us and are doing awesome things. Their customer service is second to none, so be sure to check them out. We will be back next week with a incredible roundtable. I haven't done a roundtable of three in a while. Um, you guys are going to like that one. So stay tuned for next Thursday. Have a good one.